0: If you have a Bible this morning, would you turn with me to the book of First Kings, First Kings the 19th chapter. First Kings chapter 19. I want to read a fairly lengthy passage of Scripture this morning, so I'm going to invite you to remain seated. And I actually initially told everybody we're going to go through verse 15, uh, but I don't know why I said that. That does not make sense at all. And so I'm going to go through verse 18 this morning, if that's okay. But here is First Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel that Eli- all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all Baal's prophets with the sword. Jezebel sent a message to Elijah with this message, may the gods do whatever they want to me if by this time tomorrow I haven't made your life like the life of one of them. Sincerely, Jezebel, click. Elijah was terrified. He got up and ran for his life. He, re- he arrived at Beersheba in Judah and left his assistant there. He himself went farther on into the desert, a day's journey. He finally sat down under a solitary broom bush. He longed for his own death. Oh, it's more than enough, Lord. Take my life because I'm no better than my ancestors. He lay down and slept under the solitary broom bush. Then suddenly a messenger tapped him and said, get up, eat something. Elijah opened his eyes and saw flatbread baked on glowing coals and a jar of water right by his head. He ate and drank and then went back to sleep. The Lord's messenger returned a second time and tapped him. Get up, the messenger said. Eat something because you have a difficult road ahead of you. Elijah got up, ate and drank and went refreshed by that food for 40 days and nights until he arrived at Horeb, God's mountain. There he went into a cave and spent the night. The Lord's word came to him and said, why are you here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have been very passionate for the Lord, God of heavenly forces, because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars and they have murdered your prophets with the sword and I'm the only one left and now they want to take my life too. The Lord said, go out and stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passing by. A very strong wind tore through the mountains and broke apart the stones before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. After the fire, there was a sound, thin, quiet. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his coat. He went out and stood at the cave's entrance a voice came to him and said, why are you here, Elijah? He said, I've been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces, because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars, and they've murdered your prophets with the sword. I'm it. I'm the only one left. And now they want to take my life too. The Lord said to him, Go back through the desert to Damascus and anoint Hazael as king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, Nimshi's son, as king of Israel. And anoint Elisha from Abel Mahola, Shapheth's son, to succeed you as a prophet. Whoever escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. But I have preserved those who remain in Israel, totaling 7,000. All those whose knees haven't bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths haven't kissed him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So if you are um, a football fan, you may not be here today because there's a game that kicked off just a little while ago. Um, This is a really good week to be a football fan with the NFL playoffs going on. There were two games yesterday, three I think today, one tomorrow. Uh, The Super Bowl is only four weeks away. Um... Some of you know, and I don't have time to tell the story, but I grew up, the first team I cared about when I was a little boy is the Denver Broncos, and I've never really converted from there, which was terrible because we lived in Seattle for so long, et cetera, I'm sorry. Um, And it was a really bad year for them. Um, But when I was in college here, uh, my favorite football player of all time because of my Bronco fandom is John Elway. And it was 36 years ago this week, January the 11th, 1987, that L.A. accomplished what football fans affectionately call the drive. Um, Unless you're like Steve Trachton, you're a Cleveland Brown fan. Um, Because L.A. accomplished the drive, where they were down in the playoffs, and he drove the team 98 yards, and they eventually then won the game. Now, the reason I remember that is because I was a student here. I was a junior in college at the time, and we worshiped in this room for chapel. And in those days, the choir loft was here, but those doors were still here. And some of my friends who, are st- who still haven't been fined or suspended, so I'll leave their names out of it. Um, but they snuck in, I'm sure, through this back way and came in through one of these doors while we were praying with most heads bowed and eyes closed. And they hung up a sign across the front here that said, Elway is God, right? <laughs> and then ran away. Now, I need to say, two weeks later, the New York Giants uh, proved that he actually is not a god and is mortal, but, um, and it would take 11 more seasons for Elway and the Broncos to finally win a Super Bowl. So 1998, 1999, they won back-to-back Super Bowls. But part of the reason Elway has a kind of mythical aspect to his career as a football player is because in 1999, when they won the Super Bowl, he was the MVP of the game and he quit afterwards. He just kind of rode off like the cowboy he kind of is. He kind of rode off into the sunset and into the Football Hall of Fame. And, and oftentimes, if you're a sports radio fan, you'll listen to sports commentators who will be talking about certain players who will remain nameless, but I think they quarterback the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But, um, at least today. Um, but they'll sometimes say, why don't you just win and then ride off, right? Pull an Elway and ride off into the sunset. I say that this morning because... Chapter 18 of 1 Kings is the moment Elijah should have retired. For if there's a Super Bowl moment for Elijah, it's chapter 18, the one right before we read this, where he goes to Mount Carmel and it's really his Super Bowl moment where he takes on the prophets of Baal. And they have this amazing moment, you may know the story, where where he gets Ahab, he gets all of the prophets of Baal up on the mountain and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a contest we're going to find out who's really God. And if it's Baal, then it, the bales or the balls will do this thing. But if it's Yahweh, Yahweh will act. And so they have this sacrifice, and he's even so kind of cocky about the whole thing that he lets them go first. They get to pick the bull. They get to build the altar. And they start early in the morning, and they pray all day, and they cut, and they bleed, and they dance around, and absolutely nothing happens. There's only just a little bit of daylight left, and Elijah steps forward and says, let me give this a shot. And he pours water on the sacrifice. He builds a trench around it. He does all of these things, and then he prays this brief prayer that's basically just, Lord, light it, and the fire falls from heaven, consumes the sacrifice. And then he has all of the prophets of Baal killed. Like, purges the land of this idolatry. Like, this is it, man. This is the moment. He should just walk off into the Prophet Hall of Fame at this moment. But if Elijah were a pastor, it would be like that Sunday where he finally preached the perfect sermon. Everything he'd been preparing for all these years, and heaven and earth kissed, the altars were full, people who've been obnoxious, all your ministry, suddenly were filled with the Spirit. Like, everything changed, right? And it's in that moment that he should have walked off, but he opened his email on Monday morning. Huge mistake, right? He gets this horrible email from Jezebel saying, I'm coming to get you. (laughs) And may the gods do to me whatever they want to if I haven't made you like one of the prophets of Baal. And Elijah panics and he flees. He runs. This morning, as we think about that, I I think it's important for us to recognize that in all of our lives, much of our life has to do with not the success that we have on the mountain as much as it does with the challenges that we face in the valleys of life. I've been thinking about my dad a lot. It's, it's uh, hard to believe that this week will be three years since my dad passed away. But if my dad were here, and if you were to ask him, Theron, what was the high point of your years of pastoral ministry? I don't have a doubt as to what he would answer. Th- the high point for my dad in ministry happened when um, kind of in the mid-80s, uh, maybe mid to late 80s. It, we went to Seattle in 1979, Uh, my mom and dad pastored the Seattle Aurora Church for almost 20 years. Uh, When we got there, it was a lovely church, wonderful church, about 150 people or so probably. But mom and dad, really steady time of growth for that church, Um, wonderful people who came to Christ in that. And and really the high point then was when the church got big enough, they decided let's not have three services or four sometimes every Sunday morning. Let's build a bigger sanctuary. And, And... Truly, the happiest days of my dad's ministry were when they were building that sanctuary. He would go to work every day, put on a hard hat, walk around with the workers. And it was just delightful. And I I remember so vividly this first Sunday that that we worshiped in that sanctuary. It was such a blessed day, and it was so packed. I remember us leaving and saying, we built it too small, (laughs) right? Um, But it was just an amazing time period. But my guess is, if you were to ask my dad, what was the low point in your ministry, it actually occurred not very long after that. Same church, they were in the building, but some issues and relationships and conflict happened. Some of those related to leadership in the church. And there was a period where my, my dad got super depressed, where mom would say, she almost couldn't get him out of bed some mornings. And the reason I know that is because if you were to ask me what was, what's been the high point for me in pastoral ministry, it was about 13, 14 years ago. Um, in 2006, uh, wow, that's hard to believe, 17 years ago, uh, we got called to go to Pasadena. And at the time, really nobody, including us, thought that was a very good idea. Uh, We were pastoring in Dallas, and the church was going really well. We had been on staff in Pasadena when we were in graduate school, and they called us back, and it wasn't the best moment for that church, and, and people were kind of nervous about what the future held. But we just felt like God was in that, so we moved there. And truly, the first three or four years were so much work, but they were so much fun, and God really blessed, and the church began to kind of thrive. And in the midst of that, one of the challenges that that church had faced, it has an amazing facility, but it costs a lot of money to build that. And for, man, almost 15 years, the church had suffered under the debt of that building. And the pastors who I succeeded all of them had struggled to kind of figure out how to make ministry work under the load of that debt. And So we had this opportunity. There were some missional things we wanted to do, and we wanted to kill that debt. I think we had about 1.1 million left. And so we, we decided, let's try to raise a couple million dollars, and we'll do these missional things, and we'll kill this debt finally. And things were going really well. And I think we were, I think, Deb, I think we were about 300,000 away, if I remember rightly. And I just sensed one of those moments where I sensed God saying, let's just kill this thing. Right. So I met with the board and I said, I think we should just kill this thing in a Sunday. And here's what I think we should do. We'll just plan four offerings, however many it takes. Nobody's leaving today until the debt's paid off, right? It was awesome. And so we had the ushers ready to take four or five offerings, whatever was necessary. And we took this big offering and the usher ran a slip of paper to me to tell, kind of tell me where we were. And I looked at it right before I got ready to preach. And I looked at it really quickly and it said, we made it. And then it said plus, and I thought it said plus $65, which I thought, wow, how cool is that? So I stuck it in my Bible. I said, I'm not gonna tell you, everybody booed. Um, but I went ahead and preached my sermon. And At the end of it, I said, hey, guess what? We don't have to take another offering. And I pulled the slip out. I said, the ushers told me we made it. And then I read it more carefully we had made it and we had raised $65,000 above what our goal was. Without question, that period of time where we paid off that debt, we got to burn that mortgage. There was just the sense of vitality in the congregation. New people coming to Christ. Like it was, it, was, it was truly, it was just kind of heaven and earth kissing. One of those high moments. But the reason I know my dad's story is about two, three months later, I went through a super low point. Some of the people who had been really our closest friends since we, got, since we got there, we got crossways with for silly reasons. And I started to get depressed, and I wasn't sure what to do next. And the reason I know that story is because mom and dad had moved to Pasadena at the time, and my dad would sit in my office, and almost every week, tell me the story. Son, let me tell you about my high point that led to my low point, right? And so this morning, as we think about this text, I do think, and I hope, That in all of our journeys with Christ, there are Mount Carmel moments. Maybe not where we kill all the prophets of Baal, but but high point moments in our journey with God. And moments that then ultimately lead to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. But my sense is that the majority of our vocation and calling as disciples happen in between those two mountains. And some of that is just kind of moments of quietness and a long obedience in the same direction. But my guess is for all of us, there are those moments where like Elijah, we were so excited about this thing yesterday and we so wanna die today. And we feel isolated and alone And not sure anybody's even on this thing with us. And we're kind of mad at ourselves and we're mad at God. And I think the heart of discipleship is not really the high point mountain moments. It's it's what we allow God to do in us and through us in between those two mountains. Are you with me? So now as I worked on the text this week, I did something that's really not like me. I came up with a four-point sermon that all starts with the letter P. <laughs> so if you're taking notes this morning, and I, I, I should have had Dyson. I know, it's crazy. I should have had Dyson this week, put together a real cool graphic, and we could have made refrigerator magnets to pass out at the end of the service. And you could remember the four Ps forever, and I could write a book and start a new blog or whatever. I mean, like, but here are the, here are the four Ps, and I think they'll be very helpful for you. Here they are. In those moments... God is our provision. Elijah's hungry, tired, and God shows up, taps him on the shoulder and says, Elijah, get up, eat, drink, take a nap, rest. Let me provide what you need. And I don't have any doubt that God, in those moments, will be our source of provision. The second is that God will be our source of presence. Elijah feels alone, and when he gets to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, God shows up in that quiet and stillness and and reminds Elijah that he is indeed not alone, but that God is present with him. I needed the refrigerator magnet. The third is that we need perspective. Oftentimes when we get in those moments, we cycle a further and further down. And, uh, and God says to Elijah, let me give you a little perspective here, Elijah. You feel alone, but you are not alone. There are 7,000 that I have kept who have not bowed their knee to the Baals. Strange metaphor. Who have not kissed them on the lips. Who have not kissed their idols. Who have stayed faithful to me. You are not alone. And so we get provision and we get um, thank you and we get perspective. This is why I don't ever preach these because I can't remember them. (laughs) So what hope do you have? And we get purpose. Elijah leaves Mount Horeb with this kind of call and it's a strange one. But I'm not done with you, Elijah, go. Go anoint this king, anoint that king, and maybe most importantly, I got a kid named Elisha who is gonna drive you crazy sometimes, but man, he's gonna be a really great prophet, and he's gonna be a great assistant to you. And and so go anoint him, partner with him, bless him, but also allow him to be an encouragement in your life. Did you get all those? In those in-between times, I, I think... In the vocation of discipleship, God promises to be with us, to be our source of provision and care and purpose and perspective and presence. But after I thought about that, I thought, oh, I don't really like those kinds of sermons anyway. And I don't, I don't think that's not true. I think those are absolutely true. But here's what strikes me most about this story. As we, those of you who've been journeying with us, 1 Kings, the narrator does this amazing job of narrating Elijah as a new kind of Moses. Certainly, Elijah is the first really great prophet that Israel has had since Moses. But even as the narrator tells Elijah's life, there are so many places of connection between Elijah and Moses. And there are several even in this text. And I know that somehow I bring it back to Exodus every week, but this time it's there. Um, Think about what Elijah does. He gets the threat, and where does he go? He goes out into the wilderness. And what happens when he gets in the wilderness? He gets hungry. And when he gets hungry, what does he do? He does exactly what his ancestors did in the wilderness. It's why he says, I'm no better than them. I complain and groan. But God feeds him in the wilderness and gives him water in the wilderness But then notice, he's in the wilderness 40 days. Bing, 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 bing. And where does he end up going? He goes to the very place where God met Moses on Mount Sinai, on Mount Horeb, the very place where God descended and gave the Torah to Moses. That's where God meets Elijah. Are you with me? Like it's all so similar in so many ways. Elijah is, the fancy word is, recapitulating, reliving the story of Israel in his own life reliving their journey out of exile, and now here he is reliving the same story. But here's what's so critical. It's the same story, but is it? I mean, he gets hungry, and God supplies bread and water, and that's the same. But when God fed the Israelites, what did he do? He brought the, what is it, on the ground And had Moses strike the rock and water came out of the rock. What happens here with Elijah? He wakes up and there's bread cooking. Nice. And a jar of water next to his head. It's the same, but it's different. In the wilderness, God sent quail a couple of chapters before. If I could stretch it a little bit. God sends food for Elijah and meat for Elijah, but he doesn't send it with quail. He sends ravens to him, scavengers with, with meat in their beaks. Strange. And when he gets to Mount Sinai, and I, I, I hate that I'm about to ruin this text for you today, but I really want to ruin it for you. Because so often we take this text and say, see, here's the point. God meets us in silence. I've even preached this sermon three or four times. That we want him in the fire and we want him in the earthquake and we want him in the wind. But what we get him in is in the silence. I decided this week, that's so wrong. Because here's the thing, when Moses met God on Mount Sinai, God met him in the wind and in a pillar of fire and in an earthquake. But here's the deal, God meets Elijah now, but he meets him not in those things, but meets him now in silence. And so the point is this, in so many ways, Elijah's journey is similar, and God's provision, and God's care, and God's repurposing of Elijah's life is very similar, but at the same time, it's so different. It's the same God acting in all new ways. And here's why I think that's important. I think I told you the story before about eight years ago uh, when I first came because it's my best story and I preach it everywhere I go. But when I was a a seminary student and in grad school, I I got to TA for this one professor over and over again each quarter. And I knew every quarter he was going to tell the story at some point, usually towards the end of the quarter as a kind of blessing on the students. And he would just kind of wait for the right question and then he'd go, oh, and then he'd launch into the story. But he would tell the story, it was based on a book that I found in his library years later, a book called It's Him Again. And it's this old book that was tattered up. He'd read it a hundred times. And by the way, I found a copy of the book and it's very boring, um, pretty academic. But the point of the book is this, that, that when Israel was experiencing God, they really had no context for what they were experiencing. So for example, when Abraham and Sarah encounter Yahweh, they have no scripture to read. They have no kind of long history of all sorts of ways Yahweh had interacted with people. And so Abraham and Sarah had to figure out, is this God? Is this God calling us to leave? How does this God operate? And so the book says what they had to develop was kind of the eyes of a master detective to decide, is God operating here? And so my professor would grab that theme, and he would say, so here's how it goes. One day there was nothing but tohu and bohu, chaos, right? And then God spoke, and the universe came into existence. But then fast forward a bunch of centuries, and here's that old couple. And God has called them to be the father and mother of many nations, but they can't have a baby. But then one day, a 100-year-old man and a 95-year-old woman have a baby, which would still make the news. And he says, and the crowds look on and say, how does that happen? How does that old couple have a baby? And then he would say, the wise ones, the master detectives say, it's him again. It's the creator of the universe. He's the one who gave the baby. And then he would just kind of get on a roll. And he would start going through the Old Testament. saying, and then one day Moses is standing at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's coming down upon him and he raises up his staff and the water's part in two and they pass through on dry ground. Slaves become free people. How does that happen? The crowds look on and wonder, but the wise ones, the master detectives say, it's him again, creator of the universe, giver of the baby, part of the Red Sea. Then they end up in the wilderness and they're hungry and they're complaining. And one day they wake up and the desert's covered with, what is it? they think, let's eat it. And the crowds look on and say, how does that happen? How do you pr- give bread and water to people in a wilderness? And the wise ones, the master detectives say, it's him again, creator of the universe, give of the baby, part of the Red Sea, the one who gives bread in the wilderness. And he just kind of kept going like that. And eventually the students figured it out. And they'd get involved. And it was always so much fun to watch. Every class kind of figured it out at some point. About the time he'd get to like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, Why aren't they burning? And who's this fourth guy? He'd say, The wise ones, the master detectives, and all the students would start saying, It's him again, right? It's him again, creator of the universe, give her the baby part of the red sea, give her the bread. He would just go like that. Start foaming at the mouth. Students were just totally in. (laughs) Such a good, oh, he's such a good teacher. And then he'd get down to the end of it and say, and then one day, a carpenter from a nowhere town called Nazareth comes riding in. The crowds look on and say, who is this one who comes in the name of the Lord? Who is this one who can make the blind see and the lame dance and the deaf hear and the mute speak? Who is this one? And the wise ones, the master detectives say, it's him again. You're not nearly as sharp as those students, but yes, it's him again. <laughs> Creator of the universe, giver of the baby, part of the Red Sea, bread in the wilderness, savior of the Hebrew children. It's him again. It's him again. And I, every quarter, I would bawl my eyes out. It's just such a great story. And so I've stolen it for decades now. And I always finish it this way. I always say, if I could go in that class, if I, could, if I could finish my professor's story, I'd finish it this way. And then there's this people in Nampa, Idaho, part of this church. And God starts doing amazing things in our midst. And the crowds look on and say, how does that happen And we can say it's him again, right? And I absolutely believe that. But the reason I I tell that story again to you this morning is this because it struck me this week that the creator of the universe is the one who gives the baby, but then he is the one who parts seas. And he's the one who gives bread. And he's the one who stands in the furnace. It's the same God acting with the same steadfast love and mercy and redemptive transforming grace, but it's that God showing up in different ways, in different moments, in different times. It is the same God who shook the mountain with Moses, who shh, with Elijah. And the reason why that's important is because the high point for me in ministry was about 13 years ago where God moved in the generosity of a community to eliminate a debt and give a church a future. And sometimes if I'm honest, part of my depression is I'm sitting here waiting for God to do what he did in 2013. Right? Or 2009, whatever that was. And some of us are waiting for God to move, but we're waiting for God to do what he did back then. And God is moving, but he's doing something different now in us. And in this moment, and he's still acting in ways that bring provision and presence and perspective and purpose. But while we're waiting for the fire to fall, he's speaking in the silence. Or now, while we're waiting for him to speak in the silence, he's, he's making a wind blow, right? He's inviting us to have the sensitivity to recognize his provision and his care and his repurposing of our lives in this moment and the willingness to say, oh God, send me, <laughs> thank you, Give us the eyes and the heart to discern your activity in our lives. God, help us uh, today. I don't have any doubt that you are here. I don't have any doubt that many of us in this room are in between mountains of various kinds, where the life of discipleship not only is lived most often, but also where most of the transformation happens. I don't doubt God that there are some who are here today who are um, who resonate where Elijah was scared, under threat, depressed, fearful, and part of what I hate about four words that start with the letter P is they sound trivial. this is so much more than a trivial matter of getting the right magnet on the refrigerator to remember. But I, I do pray that we would know, that we know, that we know that you have not abandoned or forsaken us. For as we will celebrate in a few months, In Christ you have gone to the place of forsakenness and so there is no place called God forsaken because you go there with us. Some of us today, God, need a little perspective and so help us to have that. Some of us need lunch and a nap and some provision and so we cry to you to bring what we need today. some need new purpose. We're waiting f- we're waiting for you to act and if 1998 rolls back around we're perfectly positioned for that. And so give us a purpose and the eyes to see that you are at work right now and maybe in ways that are different than you've acted in our lives in the past. Same love, same mercy, same grace invitations to a new purpose. But most of all today, God, may we sense your presence and know that you are here. We offer ourselves to you. Give us the eyes to see you at work. Before we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Would you stand with me?
1: streets Jesus in the darkness over every enemy Jesus for my family I speak the holy name Jesus sing it out to him this morning shout Jesus shout Jesus from the mountains Jesus for
2: For great is thy faithfulness great
0: with us this morning. Those of you online, thanks. Um, when Danny was sharing prayer Quest he, he skipped a couple of praises. I don't know how much you pay attention to social media stuff, but Josh and Jessica are having a baby. June what? Mid to late June. And Danny and Taylor are following right after uh, having a baby... Right? Two weeks later, somewhere in there. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, we got a wedding coming up, and who knows, you know, anyway. But um, (laughs) exciting stuff. Um, If you've listened well this morning, the God who brought manna is the same God who wakes Elijah up with bread and water. The God who brought quail (laughs) brings crows and ravens. The God who shakes mountains is also the God who meets us in silence. And so this morning, we can go into our world knowing that we do not go alone. There's a whole bunch of people God has redeemed and is redeeming who go with us, but we also know that he goes with us too. So unto him who by his power at work within us is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory in us, these people he calls his church. And in his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, now and for all generations. And God's people said, amen. Go in his peace. Shall Jesus